I've had to have a sock on my junk in front of cameras, and writing is far more vulnerable. Nope, got a nope right out of that situation. Words gross, I need to punch something. As a nerdy boy myself, I recognize how important these shows are to people. Got me a finger, next time I'm gonna get me an ear. Just being able to find so much joy in Teen Wolf. Welcome to Return to Beacon Hills, a Teen Wolf Rewatch podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Will Wallace, and I'm joined by... Calissa Mullis. And Kate Colvin. Every week we'll be watching and talking about the hit MTV series one episode at a time. And this week we're talking about season three, episode 14, More Bad Than Good. If you're watching Teen Wolf for the first time and you're worried about spoilers, have no fear. This podcast is broken up into two sections alpha and beta. The beta section is for first timers who are just now finding this awesome series and don't want to be spoiled about what's to come. The second section, alpha, is where we go full spoilers and talk about not just the current episode, but the entire Teen Wolf series, as well as its place in the fandom. In the show notes of your podcast app of choice, you'll find time codes for the alpha and beta sections. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at RTBH Podcast. There, our Wolfie patrons will gain access to awesome exclusives like early access to episodes, full moon AMAs, the Beacon Hills Movie Club, where we watch and provide commentary for movies starring the amazing cast of Teen Wolf and featuring the work of our talented crew, as well as guest video interviews and a monthly watch party. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash RTBH podcast and join the pack. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at return to Beacon Hills at gmail.com. More Bad Than Good was written by Jeff Davis and directed by Tim Andrew. In it, hunters continue to torture Derek and Peter for information until an unexpected rescuer intervenes. Raphael's investigation into possible impeachment keeps Stalinsky on edge. Kira's interest in befriending Scott puts her in danger. The symptoms that Scott, Stiles, and Allison suffer after the ritual make it that much more difficult for them to help wear coyote Malia, even with guidance from Deaton. Lydia and Isaac find themselves entrapped. And just when things start to look up, a mysterious figure disturbs the nematon. Our favorite quote this week comes from an exchange between Styles and Isaac. Styles says, we need a real alpha. You know what I mean. An alpha who can do alpha things, you know, an alpha who could get it going, you know, get it. And Isaac finishes with up. <laughs> a few times they actually work together on a topic because normally they're, well, as you see in this one, there's some tension there. Always. Our honorable mentions would be first exchange between Allison and Styles, where Allison says coyotes don't like wolves and they're really smart. If they don't want to be heard, they actually walk on their toes. Styles says coyotes tiptoe and Allison rolls her eyes and says they tiptoe. I actually love the look on her face when she says that. It's, it's great. great. Our next mention would be Styles' line directed at Isaac. Okay, what is the point of him? Seriously, I mean, what is his purpose aside from the persistent negativity and the scarf? <laughs> he noticed two fans. One last line from Styles. It's a doll, you know. It's got little arms, a big baby head, and dead solar size. As all dolls are required to have. Yeah, I definitely think of Jaws. Method. So the episode opens with one of Derek and Peter's captors continuing to torture them for information. Derek's life makes me so sad. Like the others are in a really bad way, but they do still have loving families. Even Isaac has Melissa now. Meanwhile, here's Derek getting tortured alongside the only family he has around him, a person who once impaled Derek on his claws and left him for dead, unapologetically. 
For Peter, this is probably something he's just into. He's very much into it. He's like, more, more, harder. Finally, the torture just stops because Peter's weirding him out. Yeah, he just leaves the room and the other Calaveras are like, what happened? And he says, his massive erection. I just can't stop looking at it. <laughs> the torturer is the one who has to use the safe word. <laughs> <laughs> safe words are for doms too. Yeah. The torturer asks again where La Loba is. Derek says they don't know. Well, Peter says that he'd love to tell them. He and Derek don't know what they're talking about. The Calaveras bring in a chainsaw to cut them in half. Even days from the electrocution, Derek spares a withering glance at Peter. Oh, Derek. Anyone else think about Kate's whole, little two checks his chainsaw for me during this bit? Oh, I hadn't, but that's a great connection. The head of the Calavera hunting family comes in and says in Spanish that it doesn't have to be so hard. Derek pretends not to understand, but she insists, again in Spanish, that Derek knows many languages. Hot. Derek Hills, a liar. Not usually, but here, yes. As an incorrigible Derek apologist, I do feel like I need to clarify that. I don't know what other languages he speaks. The yeah. language of love. There you go. <laughs> he does not. <laughs> There's a slightly different introduction to Araya in the original script. The hunters part to reveal their leader, an old woman named Araya, seated in a quarter, calmly and contentedly sewing. Araya pulls a seam ripper from the pincushion in her lap. With a sharp tool in hand, she rises to approach. That's what that is. Yeah. Well, I didn't know that's what she was actually using on screen, but I thought this was really cute, giving her like such a grandma introduction with her like over there sewing in the corner. And then she's yeah. like, I'm going to use this utensil to cut off a finger. I had forgotten that until this bit of screen business right here. And I remember breaking that in the room where we knew a finger was coming off. Like that was just going to already happen. And Jeff was like, well, how do we get to this? And he's like, let's not do a knife. That's kind of boring and played out, you know? And then I don't remember who it was. Maybe it was one of our writers, Moira, who I believe does sewing. And she said, how about a stitch ripper? And we looked it up online and they are not intimidating looking. But then we were like, we have a props department. They'll make it look <laughs> intimidating. It did. I mean, it looked like a little scythe or something. Yeah, it looks like something you would not expect a person sewing to be using. And it's like, because we put some sharp bits on it. That's why. <laughs> when Derek says they don't know any loba, she says she knows that Derek won't talk. And she calls him lobito or little wolf. Or Wuffle, if you like. Condescending? Yes. Adorable? Also yes. <laughs> Peter, on the other hand, loves the sound of his own voice. Senora Calavera says, To motivate Peter, she cuts off one of his fingers. Got me a finger. Next time I'm gonna get me an ear. Senora Calavera warns that she'll only ask Peter nine more times. She could ask more. There's other things she could cut off. She could. He got toes. <laughs> okay, so 19 more times. With a shot of Peter's cutoff finger embedded clawed down onto the floor, we end the teaser and go into the theme sequence. I love this theme sequence, except for that shot of Scott levitating at the beginning. I just don't care for how it looks. Yeah, I actually forgot it wasn't only in the 3A theme sequence. Back in Beacon Hills, Scott and Stiles search the preserve at night and find a coyote den, or rather, a wear coyote den, belonging to Malia Tate. This is a cool little set. I love that we get to see a den. My headcanon is that in traditional werewolf mating rituals, one potential mate has to prove themselves by building the other a den. Tradition! <laughs> in the den, they find her coat and teddy bear. You'd think over eight years, she would have accumulated more stuff. I'm not sure how human her faculties are at this point. Well, yeah, but even animals accumulate things. Nesting. 
listing yeah just saying that was work cody that didn't be as horrid up as my house is (laughs) (laughs) they're laughing because it is horrid up (laughs) can confirm Scott worries that Malia won't come back to this den because his and Styles' scents will be all over it. Styles thinks he should track her, but Scott is afraid of shifting because he isn't sure he has enough control to shift back to human afterward. Without Derek around, he isn't sure whom to turn to. As a crime scene, it's somewhat out of Deaton's league and more in Stalinsky, Styles realizes. So why can't Isaac try to track Malia because he can shift? I did not even think about that. He was at the scarf store. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know. They don't bring it up until way later in the episode, and I'm not sure why. Yeah. So they call the police. Now, see, that would look suspicious from Scott's dad's point of view. But then Scott's also involved in all this shit, so... True. That's the other thing. Talking about corruption, I feel like he should be recusing himself because Scott's so clearly caught up in at least some of the suspicious cases the sheriff's department has dealt with. And they have the same last name, so it's not like people might not know Raphael's connection to him. Right. Scott and Stiles explain their theory that... Malia was affected by the full moon eight years ago, and her moon craziness led to the car accident. When she was the only survivor, she ran into the woods, racked with guilt, until she couldn't shift back to her human form. Stalinsky doesn't believe them. I mean, come on now. Come on, man. You know werewolves exist. I know that he's new to all this, but... He's being a scully. (laughs) I mean, the whole point of him looking back at the records is because he was like, now I can look at things with like a fresh set of eyes, now knowing the missing piece. Now he's like, well, but I'm going to also ignore that piece. Yeah. Because it's a little too far-fetched for me. (laughs) As Solinsky tells them to keep this quiet, especially for Mr. Tate, Scott hallucinates a version of himself killing young Malia. Unfortunately for Stolinsky, Raphael and Mr. Tate arrive on the scene. Mr. Tate recognizes an item of Malia's. I told you to stay out of it, Nick Lachey. Raphael tells Scott he's curious about how his mom is okay with him running around the woods at night. Oh, you want to criticize some parenting here? Right. When Raphael approaches him, Stolinsky asks why Raphael would bring Mr. Tate to the scene. Raphael says he needs confirmation on the lead, and he thinks he understands why the department is closing so few cases. Okay, this is so confusing to me. I don't understand why Raphael is saying he understands why they don't close cases. They got a new lead on what seemed like a simple closed case, and they came out to investigate it. It's not like they decided not to search for her remains or anything, just that they hadn't found them yet. So there's no reason to bring Tate in at this point. Seems like a weird jab from Raphael. Yeah, I don't get it either. I also found it confusing. I was like, what about this as confirming your suspicions that they can't close cases? I mean, this case was previously marked as closed, but then they got new evidence. So they investigated it. None of this is straying from how it's supposed to go. And Selinsky's absolutely right. You shouldn't bring Tate in to identify remains that they haven't even found yet. Also, definitely not to the scene. It's one thing to be like, oh, he wanted him to ID like the jacket, take it to his house. Doesn't need to be out there where it happened. Right. That's going to be super traumatizing for this person who's reprocessing a bunch of grief. Raphael's just going out of his way to be a dick. I feel like just as a f*** you to Stolitsky. Yeah. He feels like he's better than because he's never had a drinking problem. He's just a bad father. 
Solinsky says there is no body, but Raphael seems confident they'll find Malia's remains. And the certainty is better for Mr. Tate, no matter how painful the truth turns out to be. In the original script, there was an extra exchange between Scott and Styles. Styles says, you seeing what I'm seeing? Scott nods, watching Tate twist the scarf in his hands, fingers clenching into fists. Styles says, that's not a guy who wants the truth. He wants a dead coyote mounted on the hood of his car. Scott says, he just doesn't know he's going to be killing his own daughter. Meanwhile, a coyote crests a hill and looks at Beacon Hills. It's so cute. Who's a pretty coyote? You are. You're a pretty coyote. I've never found coyotes threatening because they're so small. They can still be dangerous. Yeah, they could fuck up a person, but I wouldn't feel the same anxiety coming upon a coyote as I'd feel facing a wolf. If I had to fight off a coyote, I might win. With a wolf, I think I would just lay down and say, go ahead, just do it. <laughs> Scott and Styles consult with Allison about Malia's case. Allison drops some knowledge about coyotes and tells Styles to send her the location of the den. Kira approaches Scott and tells him she did some research on Bardo and printed it out, though she can't find the printout in her backpack. I love Kira so much. There's an extra moment here in the original script. Kira keeps searching her bag, unable to find it. Kira says, I swear I printed it out. I can tell you what I remember. I have a really good memory. You want me to just tell you? And Scott says, how about after class? Dorbs. Her dad joins them and tells Kira she forgot the research she printed out for that boy she likes. Her face. Her face, though. Oh, no. It's just the worst. Poor Kira. Oh, Tom. So good. She takes out her phone and Googles, can you die of embarrassment? Then where to find a hole to crawl into. As class begins, Mr. Yukimura makes Styles come up to the front of the room to read a passage from the textbook. Styles tries, but the words blur. Then the letters fall down the page. I love this effect. In the script, they actually flutter to the floor, but this still looks really great. Yeah, it's really cool. It is cool. But it also reminds me of the rain, rain, rain comes down, 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 bitten Winnie the Pooh. Styles starts to have a panic attack. Okay, I feel like as a teacher, Mr. Yukimura should realize something's wrong. Scott gets up and says he'll take Styles to the nurse's office. Since he knows the problem is supernatural and not physical or purely psychological, Scott takes him to the locker room instead so they can be alone. Styles becomes convinced that he's dreaming. This reminds me of the promo that they did for this season, which I was actually obsessed with. It was great, that mirror promo. Yeah, with the point of view of Styles as he's walking through with blood on his hands and stuff, and then he ends with him looking in the mirror. Yeah, it was really cool. So good. Scott asks how you can tell you're dreaming, and Styles says that you can count your fingers because you have extra fingers in dreams. Scott has Styles count his fingers to prove this is real. Okay, I've never encountered that in dreams. Have you guys? No, I haven't either. I don't remember my dreams. It'd be funny if this was like that bit in Bruce Almighty when he's getting God to say how many fingers he has behind his back and God says six. He says, no, it's five. But then he holds up his hand and it has six fingers on it. <laughs> like Scott just keeps going and more fingers just pop up. I mean, it wouldn't be funny for Styles, but you know, it, it'd be funny for us. How do I know it's a dream? I have a moment where I ask myself, why am I in high school? Didn't I already graduate college? My trigger of realizing that I'm dreaming is always that I'm naked outside my own home mm. and then it always gets to a point where i'm like wait a second i hate how i look there's no way i would leave the house without clothes and then i'm lucid dreaming which is <laughs> actually dope styles fears that he scott and allison can't help anyone including malia while they're like this scott says they can always try and that's the slogan for scott's pack and if you recall what we previously postulated would be on derrick hale's headstone mm, absolutely yep 
After class, Kira notices that Scott and Styles left their backpacks in the classroom, so she picks them up. As she heads into the hallway during lunch, she encounters the coyote. Nope. Got a nope right out of that situation. Kira runs into the locker room, but the coyote smashes right through the door's window pane as it leaps into the room with her. Well, you'd pee your pants if you saw that coming at you. Yes, I'd be scared, but I could still take it. It just came flying through that window. Yeah, it doesn't have thumbs. If there hadn't been a window, it wouldn't have been able to open the door. Uh Uh-huh. I think you'd play dead possum style. Oh my god. I've heard coyotes sometimes pick on small doggos. That's the real crime. I know this because my family has a nine-pound doggo. She's just so tiny. Scott comes in and protects Kira from the coyote. He glances at Styles' backpack, which Kira had brought in. It's ripped, and inside is the doll he and Styles found at the site of the car crash. Meanwhile, Peter asks his captors to put his finger on ice. Above them, someone enters and a gunfight ensues. I like the image of the shells falling through the gaps in the floorboards into the basement where Derek and Peter are being kept. Yeah, it's like watching a John Wick film. Complete with cruelty toward a puppy. Aww. I apologize to the Lycan community. (laughs) (laughs) From the script, footsteps hammer the ceiling above. Derek and Peter glance up, listening to the sounds of a group eating and drinking. Peter says, God, I'd kill for a drink, even just a beer. Almost in response, he hears the clunk and clink of a glass falling to the floor. I feel like that would be weird. Peter doesn't seem like a beer guy. Who would drink a beer when they can't feel anything from it? Like purely for the taste? They have werewolf beer that instead of using hops, they use, you know, Wolfsbane. I've read that fanfic. I've read that too. I'm sure. But yeah, just, I don't know. It feels very out of character for Peter here. Yeah, he's a whiskey neat guy. Yeah. Brayden walks into the basement room. Derek recognizes her as the person who saved Isaac. She clarifies that she was hired to save Isaac, and now she's been hired to save Derek. Peter, she can leave for dead. Peter is slightly offended, but he's more surprised when he learns who hired Brayden this time, Deucalion, the one who gave Brayden the scars on her neck from when he tried to rip her throat out. But as far as Brayden is concerned, a job's a job. I really want to know more about what happened between Deucalion slashing her up and Deucalion hiring her. Did they like slash her up, leave her for dead, but he take her business card for just in case? (laughs) (laughs) They clearly made up afterward. Also, how did Deucalion know they'd been taken? Supernatural grave. They read the script. (laughs) (laughs) Peter picks up his severed finger on the way out, but Derek insists he's not leaving without what they came for. At Beacon Hills High School, Stalinsky tells Stiles that students saw the coyote running back into the woods. Stiles asks, what happens if the coyote actually hurts someone? Stalinsky says, it'll be put down. Assuming they get the right coyote and or they have to go on a whole coyote killing spree. Yeah, they want a possum situation like on Parks and Rec. Stiles reminds him that there's a girl inside that coyote. He asks if Stalinsky has reverted to being a non-believer. Stalinsky says he knows there's a lot that he doesn't understand yet. But they can all be solved with guns. Well, he is American. Stiles says he's sure the coyote is Malia because Scott's sure. And he always trusts Scott for reasons. I guess because it's not his own son. (laughs) Stiles demonstrates Scott's super hearing, leading Stalinsky to take Stiles back into the locker room to try to figure out the situation. There, Kira explains to her dad that she was looking for Scott and Stiles to give them their backpacks back. Brought to you by Nike. Kira goes on to explain that she just wanted to do something nice and to make some friends. Styles tells Scott he's pretty sure Malia came looking for the doll, which he took in case Scott wanted to use it to get her sent. Mr. Tate sees the doll and recognizes it as his daughter's. 
Stalinsky approaches and says he isn't sure how Tate heard about this incident, maybe a police scanner, but he needs to leave. As he goes to show Tate out, he realizes that Tate is armed. Tate says he has a permit, but Stalinsky tells him that all California schools are gun-free zones. Enraged, Tate demands that they find the coyote. It is super weird to me that apparently he became really obsessed and thought he'd go out and get like a scanner and everything and just listen for coyote mentions. People do weird things when they're upset. At her apartment, Allison puts together a high-powered tranquilizer rifle. I love this bit. Just the combination of her flowery dress and this huge gun. Such a great contrast. It's badass. Yeah, she looks awesome. Scott's part in preparing to find Malia is getting xylazine, a horse tranquilizer, from Deaton. He only has three vials, so whoever uses them will need to be a good shot. Scott says Allison's a perfect shot, but Isaac reminds him that she only used to be a perfect shot, not to mention how difficult it'll be to find the coyote in the first place. Styles doesn't appreciate his pessimism or the scarf Isaac's wearing in 65 degree weather. That's a little chilly. Come on, Styles. You lived in California too long. <laughs> that is not chilly. That's not scarf weather. And even the way he's wearing it is weird. Yeah, it's not actually wrapped around his neck. There's an extra couple of lines here in the script. Isaac says, if we manage to find this thing. Styles says, this girl, she's a girl. <laughs> Isaac says, covered in fur and living in a dirt hole, right? This is why Styles wants to punch him. He's not wrong. Okay, Isaac, you were once covered in fur and living in an abandoned train. So let's ease up. Isaac ignores Styles and adds that they don't know how to turn Malia back to human when she's been a coyote for eight years. Scott says he can. After all, Peter made Scott turn just by using his voice. Same with Deucalion at the distillery. But Dean has concerns. This is a were-coyote, not a werewolf, so they don't know whether it would work even if Scott could find someone to teach him how to do it. They still haven't heard from Derek. Scott is willing to try on his own, but he's afraid to shift, let alone use new wolfy powers. Because of the ritual, he has, well, performance issues. Do you think there's any late-night TV ads for that one? I'd like to see that. Styles suggests that they need an alpha who can teach Scott how to do it. Maybe the twins. They aren't alphas anymore, but they might know how to make other wares shift using their voices. Yeah, I mean, Derek isn't an alpha anymore either. The only one who's seen the twins in weeks is Lydia. So Lydia gets in contact with the twins and gets them to meet her, Scott, and Styles at Derek's loft. As soon as they arrive, the twins start beating up Scott. Because we gotta have punching and unnecessary flips. It's weird that Styles and Lydia don't even try to help Scott. They don't even say anything. Yeah, they're kind of just like, eh, okay, we'll see how this plays out. Is anyone worried about why Derek isn't answering? Dude is surprisingly reliable when there's a crisis afoot. Nope, not worried at all. Yeah, giving Scott the benefit of the doubt. At the end of last season, Scott did say he hoped Derek would find a better life somewhere else. Maybe Scott at least doesn't want to push in case he found a better life. He doesn't want to keep insisting Derek come back to help him. Uh, but this is Derek we're talking about. We know that's not true. Yeah, Scott probably should have just assumed he was being tortured somewhere. But Scott <laughs> does always like to think, like, nice things about people, always the optimist. Yep. Man, if three's a pattern, what do you call Derek's history of torture? Oh, my God. A lifestyle. Uh, <laughs> damn. <laughs> uh, so, did Lydia tell Styles about... The twins? They've been talking about her love life? I guess. I guess, yeah. 
Just kidding. They talk about everything. We never get to see it. The twins explain they are actually trying to help teach Scott how to do an alpha roar. You do it by giving in and letting go. Stell says he actually did something similar with Scott before using a heart monitor and some lacrosse balls. Season one's aptly titled Heart Monitor. But this scene feels a lot more like a slice of fight club homoeroticism. Wait till you see what was cut. So pain makes you human, but it also makes you fully wolf out? Yes. I think it's the anger that makes you fully wolf out. Hmm. There's a bit of a stidia moment that was cut from the original script. Fangs out, Aiden unleashes a powerful roar, shaking the walls around them, vibrating the dust right off the old furniture. Lydia pulls in a breath, more than a little impressed by the fierce display of power. Styles says, noticing Lydia. What's that? Lydia responds, nothing. Styles continues, no, nah, that was something. Lydia says, nodding at Aiden, that was something. Okay, there's another weird bit that was also cut. Ethan says, come on, McCall, give it all you got. We can always heal and we can take it. Aiden says, he likes to take it. Styles to Lydia says, I'm not even sure what they're talking about anymore. Uh, I am because <laughs> Aiden was apparently like, you know what all these people need to know? That my brother's a bottom, which I also weirdly know for a reason. Because <laughs> he's the top. This is a supernatural podcast, Will. <laughs> oh, come on, really? Say, that stopped y'all, but the literal fisting they did last season, y'all are like, no, no, this part's fine, but if we make it gay, that's weird. You've taken it no, too far. No, <laughs> no. What pulled me up actually was that I was thinking about Danny because the implication oh, is that yes, Danny yes. is the top. Yeah. Which I guess makes sense because he's like, the creme de la creme, right? He rises to the top, so that feels right. Scott fears that he won't be able to change back, which would turn him into Malia, or worse, Peter. Anyone but Peter. Also, how does Aiden know about Peter? So did they have files on everyone in Beacon Hills that Deucalion gave them? I would think yes. Deucalion is the type of person who didn't ask a question he didn't already know the answer to. And so I- A lawyer, I, essentially. So I, I do believe he probably had dossiers on relevant parties. I guess I feel like Deucalion would know everything, but Colleen Innes didn't seem like the type who would ever bother listening or wanting to know anything. They kind yeah. of just seemed like they were weapons to be pointed at something. And then obviously yeah. Colleen wanted to do her own thing, but I don't know, it just seemed- he was the alpha of alphas, so he told them what to do. So it almost seems like he also wouldn't want to necessarily give them too much information because, as they say, knowledge is power, and he wouldn't want them to have anything that he doesn't want them to know. I, I was going to say, when you were talking about being like weapons to be pointed, I feel like that's the twins, really. Because, yeah. I mean, think about the whole scene with Boyd's death. They were literally just like, and now we do the murder, and now we do the murder. Like, Yeah. I could also see Ennis if they're having like a round table, and Deucalion is passing out the dossiers, and he gets to Ennis, and Ennis is like, words gross! He sucks out of his hands. He's like, I need to punch something. He has a very soothing voice. Maybe he made them all books on tape. (laughs) (laughs) And now, Peter Hale. (laughs) That night, Tate prepares a new animal trap. Okay, he's got to know there's probably more than one coyote in the woods. It's a very large preserve is all I was going to say. And there's, I would assume, lots of coyotes in that area. It's a white whale situation. True, but he knows there's one particular coyote that's been coming to his house. 
or there could have been lots of coyotes. He doesn't have those things I need. Isaac joins Allison at her apartment while she tries to set up the rifle with the tranquilizers. Her shaking hands make it nearly impossible. Allison drops one of the vials on the floor. She stoops to pick it up, and when she stands up again, she's suddenly at the hospital morgue. This fits great. I like her wedge boots. This is the outfit that Barbara talked a lot about, and it is a great combination. The duality of Allison Argent. Crystal Reed talked about this outfit, too. Right, yes. The dress with the army jacket. Allison sees an operating table in the center of the room with a sheet draped over a body. She goes over to it and pulls back the sheet to reveal herself. (gasps) Her point of view switches to the version of herself that's lying on the table. She opens her eyes and finds herself surrounded by doctors, one of whom is her late aunt Kate, who I don't believe has ever, ever been to medical school. (laughs) (laughs) Kate tells the others that authorities think the cause of death was animal attack, but they have to do an autopsy. Her opinion is that the truth is probably something stranger. To Allison's horror, she realizes that her chest cavity is opened up. She is the corpse they're talking about. The effects for her innards and still beating heart look great. They do, but in the original script, it said the blood dripping down her torso off her hands into the floor isn't red. It's more like a reflective mercury. In fact, it looks like liquid silver. Oh, interesting. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen that. I like that detail a lot. Kate takes Allison's heart out of her body, saying there's something wrong with it. Well, yeah, it wasn't attached to anything. (laughs) When Kate pronounces the other organs to be in pretty good shape, the other doctors pull down their masks, revealing werewolf fangs, as does Kate. They all begin eating the organs out of Allison's body. Joe got it! Joe got it! If anyone gets that reference, write into returntobeaconhills at gmail.com and you'll win, I don't know, some gum or something. (laughs) We'll just send someone a pack of gum. I've seen different films where they say choke on it, but not that. (laughs) They begin eating the organs out of Allison's body until she wakes up from hallucination and finds herself pointing the rifle directly at Isaac's face. Not his pretty face. She puts the gun down and apologizes. Trying to lighten the mood, Isaac says it's better than ring daggers. Is it? Allison worries she won't be able to help anyone, but Isaac offers to help. With some uh, sexual healing. Isaac tells Allison to show him what to do with the trank gun. Scott, Styles, Lydia, Isaac, and Allison all meet out of the preserve. I think this was shot up at Griffith Park. Is that where you guys usually did the preserve scenes? It depended on what was necessary for the scene. Lydia voices her concerns that they could be doing more harm than good. Scott says they're trying to keep a father from killing his daughter. Isaac points out that it's more like they're trying to stop a guy from killing a coyote who's actually his daughter, but they don't know how to turn the coyote back into his daughter. Styles once again complains about Isaac's unhelpfulness. You're not wrong, Styles. It's interesting that Lydia says more harm than good here when the episode title is more bad than good. I did not notice that. Me either. Allison gets out the trank gun from her car. Once again, I ask, where is Chris Argent? Meanwhile, Stolinski confronts Tate, whose coyote traps pose a danger to the people of Beacon Hills. Stolinski finds a back room filled with boxes from traps that Tate had purchased. It's like the Acme factory back there. (laughs) He really took advantage of that Amazon Prime account. (laughs) Stolinski says a child could die if they encountered one of these traps. Tate says that his child died. So all other kids are fair game. It's not how anything works, bro. 
So originally the theory was that an animal dragged the body away. Does he now think she was alive when that happened? And it wasn't just the coyote dragged a dead body away? It's not a dingo. (laughs) I don't know. I think his just PTSD can has just been reopened. It comes in a can? It does come in a can, also in a spray bottle. Zelensky tells him that the two of them are going to go out and disarm all the traps he set. But when Tate sees that the screen on his back door has been torn open, he realizes the coyote must be inside the house. The coyote's giving him a strong you by coming in after he set all those traps. Didn't set those traps inside, mother Right? Where's his dog? Yeah, I think they forgot he had a dog. <laughs> I would love it if Tate went into the bedroom and the dog was just in there cuddling with the coyote. Aww. That would be adorable. It would be. Tate sees the coyote in the backyard with his daughter's doll. I want this doll. I like it. Tate chases the coyote into the woods. Stalinsky warns Styles about Tate being armed and dangerous, as well as the traps he set. There's actually a short scene that was cut in the original script. It said, underneath a canopy of trees, Isaac and Scott both look in opposite directions. This is about the gunshot. Isaac says, I heard it this way. Scott says, what are you talking about? It came from over there. Isaac says, I swear it was this way. Allison said, Scott, are you sure it was the other way? Lydia says, it doesn't matter. The sound could have bounced off any solid object, split up and go both ways. A moment later, Scott kicks his bike into gear and hurdles into the trails. Trank gun in her hand, Allison follows Isaac the opposite direction, racing into the thick of the woods. Styles calls out, whoa, wait, what are we supposed to do? Allison turns and throws Styles a net. He catches it in his hands, looking down at it. Styles says, are you serious? Without another word, Allison turns, racing to catch up to Isaac. Yeah, I feel like we didn't need this scene. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't. This is definitely just one of those scenes that you think you need when you're writing. It's just connective tissue to go to get to the next time you see everybody all split up. But then when you're cutting it together, you're like, nah. Yeah. Don't need this. We're in the action. Nobody cares. When Styles hears about the doll, he realizes that the doll is the key, though he doesn't fully understand it yet. Styles shows Lydia a picture on his phone of a photo of Malia with her younger sister. Lydia points out that it's not Malia, but her sister holding the doll. With that last piece in place, Styles figures out where Malia is going. Styles, you're so smart. Isaac runs ahead of Allison, who has the trank gun, until he gets caught in a trap, just in time to spot Tate, who's armed with more than just tranquilizers. Good thing Isaac, unlike Cody's, has thumbs. Isaac tells Allison to use the trank gun on Tate. She shoots and misses. Isaac tells her to breathe. Think about me naked. I mean, it would have been a little awkward for him to say that while bleeding, but it would have been the first time on Dean Wolf. (laughs) Right. True. Think about me wearing only a scarf. (laughs) Nothing else. (laughs) Allison whispers the new code to herself and manages to shoot Tate with a trank. The French was slightly better this time. She's been practicing. When she hits Tate, Isaac's like, okay, now me, because this hurts so much. (laughs) Unfortunately, the coyote is now gone. Styles leaves a voicemail for Scott explaining that the doll was Malia's sister's. Malia left at the site of the wreck in remembrance, like leaving flowers at a gravesite. She just wants to put the doll back. When Styles gets off the phone, Lydia alerts him to a nasty surprise. She has stepped on a trap. If she moves, it'll snap on her leg. Lydia gets a little annoyed with Styles in the original script. Styles says, don't move. Lydia says, I know. Styles continues, don't even breathe. Lydia says, if you keep stating the obvious, I'm going to scream. Look underneath the trap for a warning label. Y'all know what happens when Lydia screams. Mm, yeah. Lydia tells Styles to look for a warning label. Styles is skeptical that the manufacturer would put instructions for disarming the trap on the bottom of the trap itself until Lydia exasperatedly reminds him that animals can't read. Do I have to explain every goddamn thing to everyone? 
Yeah, she is getting super annoyed. In the original script, she has an insult, making the line, because animals can't read, you idiot. Burn. But Styles realizes that thanks to the symptoms he's experiencing, neither can he. (gasps) Will's full of gasps this time. It's like I'm experiencing it for the first time. Lydia tells him that he's too smart for instructions anyway. I feel like this is a situation where instructions are actually very important. She's trying to build up his ego, Will. Well, she might have to do that with a fake leg. Styles always figures things out, Lydia says, and he'll figure this out too. Well, this time the letters are just rearranged. They're just anagrams. Get to unscrambling, Styles. Better yet, he has a phone. Just take a picture and show it to Lydia. She can read. Yes, she can. Oh yeah, that would have been a really good solution. Yeah, I can't believe neither of them thought of that. He was on the phone like two seconds ago. Styles has to work through his stuff. Lydia should have thought of it. Empowered by Lydia's belief in him, Styles studies the trap and manages to get her out of it before it can snap shut. I actually think it would have been funny if she had been like, okay, now that I'm not panicking, I've realized you could have taken a picture and shown it to me. Then they could have acknowledged that that was the logical solution while still getting the beat they wanted with the characters. Yeah, that would have been really good. Scott continues running after the coyote, leaping over the wrecked car. David Elson talked about this stunt with the air ramp in his episode. Leaping werewolves. (laughs) Scott roars, causing Isaac to wolf out and tear the trap apart to make his escape. I have the weirdest boner. (laughs) In the script, it actually calls Scott Isaac's alpha. It says, hearing his alpha. Nice. The roar also startles the coyote into submission. The coyote's like, oh my god, okay! What a meanie, god. The coyote then shifts back to her human form, a naked 16-year-old girl, Malia Tate. It's Shelly Hinnick time! Yay! Shelly! Stalinsky reunites Malia with her father as Styles looks on from the car. Dino hitting that score hard, I love it. Reminds me of the scores that Steve Jablonski has done. He's a really good composer. I looked him up after you said this while we were rewatching it, and I've seen 19 different movies and a TV show that he scored, including, by the way, Deepwater Horizon, starring Teen Wolf's own Dylan O'Brien. Damn. Styles finds that his ability to read has returned, at least for now. Later, Raphael leaves Stalinsky's office. You can get f- out now. I imagine that after Stalinsky slams the door, Raphael slaps a post-it note under the name Sheriff Stalinsky and the post-it note reads, for now. (laughs) What a petty bitch. There was an extra scene in the original script. It's in Stiles' room at night. It says, Stiles slowly lies back in bed to go to sleep. The moment his head hits the pillow, however, his eyes remain open, wide open. He stares up at the ceiling, still too frightened to close his eyes in the darkness. Derek, Peter, and Brayden find the box that Derek had been looking for. It's made of mountain ash wood and filled with mountain ash. Someone doesn't want their hands in there, Peter observes. Derek can get his hands in my box. Claws and all. I've led a good life. (laughs) Remember in Arrested Development when they said that Buster was in the womb for 11 months and when he finally came out, they said there were claw marks on the inside of his mother's uterus? Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Prepare yourself, Kate. Worth it. Out in the preserve... (laughs) Someone approaches the stump of the nematon and pulls a plant out by the roots. From the newly opened gap in the wood comes a swarm of fireflies, which soon coalesce into human-like figures. Oh, great ending. Now is when the story really gets going. That's all we can say without spoilers. Speaking of which... 
All right, Wolfies, that wraps up the beta section for more bad than good. And now we're about to dive into spoilers, not just for this episode, but for the whole Teen Wolf series. If you want to stay spoiler free for all the excellent stories to come, jump out now and we'll catch you next week. But if this isn't your first time in Beacon Hills and you want to hear more, don't move a muscle. Here comes the alpha. Scott, you can't transform. Allison's being haunted by her dead aunt. I'm straight up losing my mind. We can't do this. We can't. We can't help Malia. We can try. Right, Wolfies, now we're going to jump over to our interview with Todd Stashwick, who played Henry Tate, Malia Tate's father, on Teen Wolf. Let's have a listen. Todd, how did you get into acting? Let's let's go all the way back. I was going to be a cartoonist, which uh, subsequently my son is professional animator. Nice. So, wow. So it's, it's cool. kind of, it's in the fam. I was going to be an artist, but I couldn't take all of the notes on my art. I was like, no, that's the inside of my head. You don't get to tell me I'm doing it wrong. But like since I was a kid with my Star Wars and Star Trek and Planet of the Apes action figures, I was always telling stories and doing characters and impressions. And then when I was in junior high school, I was like, I went to see a play that my sister had worked backstage at when she was in high school. And I'm like, I want to do that. Nice. So I started doing plays early on and in junior high and in high school, which then led to just majoring in it in college and then kind of sealing off all the exits so that I could only continue down that path. That's very cool. Well, how did that path lead to Teen Wolf? I was a Second City Chicago guy. I was like a comedy guy. And I was going to do Saturday Night Live. I was up for Saturday Night Live in 95. And I'm like, I am going to be comedy guy because I was a sketch comedy improv guy. That was like my path. And I was in New York for years doing improv. So then I moved to LA or I came out to look for an apartment. And while I was out here looking for an apartment, my managers and agents were like, well, you're here for a week. We'll at least send you out for stuff. And I'm like, okay, I'll go out for stuff. And I booked an episode of Angel. And then I'm like, I literally had to call my wife. I go, "Uh, I'm not coming back. You need to pack (laughs) up our son and all of our stuff and I'll find a place. I will furnish it, but I'm already doing the thing that we moved out here to do, which was become a working actor. And I had been working in uh, in New York for a spit, but now it's like, okay, now I'm like doing shows and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay. Uh, so I booked Angel. And then I was also booking a lot of comedy, but Angel led to Buffy. So suddenly I started kind of getting known in the nerdosphere. And wonderfully enough, much of that is what I consume. I was a Star Wars kid. I grew up on this stuff. I'm a child of the 70s and 80s. So this is why I do what I do. I have always enjoyed storytelling in the realm of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And so I think when you get known for doing a thing, those casting directors count on you. You know, when you're a guest star, your job is not to bump into the furniture. Like it's a well-oiled machine. You just get in there do your thing they know they can count on you and you get out you make no waves you just become like a utility player and you just get in there and you nail it and you go so as far as teen wolf goes i'm not even sure i auditioned for that role 
I may have auditioned for other roles earlier on in earlier seasons. But then by that point, they were like, oh, Stashwick can do this. Just call his agent and, and, and offer to him. I could be remembering that wrong, but it feels right because that's happened a couple times in this specific kind of genre shows where they just call up and go get that guy because he's part of this nerdy show scene. <laughs> yeah. Their nerdy show scene. I like yeah, that. Yeah. Right? I actually wanted to ask about angel and buffy so you played a demon on both yes. buffy the vampire slayer and yes. angel though not the same demon which same i find demon. interesting you also played dracula on supernatural I how did. did those roles compare to playing the human side of the equation on teen wolf during the season when teen wolf introduced demons to their mythology well first of all the demon voca and the emphatic demon a they were worlds apart and the makeup does 90% of the work and my voice already sounds like a garbage truck. So all I had to do, all I had to do was kind of, you know, I, I think a lot of it comes from like Shakespeare training in college and stuff. Cause when you have to say like, you have stolen the scrolls of aversion, it's all the D and D speak. And you have to sound like you speak like you're an ancient uh, entity. The shark demon on Buffy, I just played him like a, a, a gangster. Like he was like an, and like his shirt was like literally a shark skin shirt. And I played him like I was Tony Soprano's second. So they dressed me in like a, a tank top and, and they dressed me like an Italian kind of Sopranos type gangster. So I just leaned into that, like the tough, the dumb, tough guy of it all. And then Dracula, I was just doing Bella Lugosi. Like that was the job was to, you know how hard it is to perform in black and white? No. Um, so I was just aping Bela Lugosi until there's this turn in that episode where I get really vulnerable and really human and sort of explain why I do what I do. Now, how it compares to playing Mr. Tate is I'm in and out of the makeup chair in 15 minutes, as opposed to the Demon Volca, where you're like, you're there at four o'clock in the morning to be ready for an 8 a.m. shoot, and it takes four hours to get the gack on and the contacts in and the goofy teeth. And so Mr. Tate was a lot less time consuming and arduous because it's not fun to be packed and all that stuff uh, unless you're Doug Jones. And then <laughs> I've talked to him about it many times and he's like, he's like, doesn't bother me, doesn't bother me. I'm like, wow, how doesn't it bother you? I get so claustrophobic. Uh, but playing Mr. Tate, doing that was no different than doing any real drama because he didn't really witness much of the extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't think he was ever really made privy to the whole werewolf situation. I didn't know it about my daughter. Right. So it was like I was, I might as well have been doing One Tree Hill. Like, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like, I, I might as well have been doing that or Dawson's Creek. I was just playing the kind of concerned dad. The heavy lifting, obviously, was the emotional stuff between me and my daughter, but I wasn't witness to any of the extraordinary. Gotcha. Much more straightforward drama. Kind of, Yeah. How did you prepare to be in Henry's mindset while you were on the show? Many characters on Teen Wolf call themselves significantly traumatized, but Henry's experience is so unique. How did you find that place emotionally to understand what he was going through all those years? And then again, when Malia came back. Well, I mean, it's it's acting is all just asking yourself what if, right? So I had a 15-year-old and I had a uh, four-year-old. So I had kids. So all I had to do is ask myself, what if? What if my children just disappear? You know, and I felt maybe responsible. It's always just, it's just you ask yourself a question and then you have those thoughts as an actor of, 
good Lord, what if I lost my child? Like, as Hamilton said, it's the unimaginable. So you put yourself in that situation and the tears flow, right? I mean, if, if you're, if you're a being of empathy and, and not a sociopath, you fully just taking the time to kind of quiet the mind and ask yourself those questions. It's not difficult to feel that stuff. As Kate mentioned, and you've already talked a little bit about, uh, you played Dracula and Supernatural. Can you tell fans a little bit more about uh, your experience on that set? What's fascinating is is I spent a week of my life, seven to 10 days, working on a, a, an episode of TV, right? Mm-hmm. And with Teen Wolf, I think I did two or three, maybe... It was a two-parter, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The first one was a cliffhanger yeah. where I'm like, uh-oh, I got my gun. I'm going out the back door. And I'm like, don't kill Shelly. <laughs> and so you you spend a week of your life doing a thing. And for Supernatural, it was 14 years ago. And so you spend a week of your life doing something 14 years ago, but because of the, the massive fan base, uh, it endures. And, and I was very fortunate that, especially with Supernatural, such a memorable episode. It was outside the box of what they usually do black and white episode. And then it's just amazing and humbling that it's still talked about to this very day. And Teen Wolf is still talked about because of the passion that the fans keep it alive. So you, you kind of go into these projects understanding that you're a bit of a custodian for something that means a lot to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so you want to take that seriously. And I take every job seriously, of course. But as a nerdy boy myself, I recognize how important these shows are to people. So you want to give it 110%. Understand the genre you're acting in understand your function in that script in supernatural i had done a pilot with jared padalecki when he was 17 years old so i had already known him i had already known him for that was 2000 so i'd already known him for eight years when i went out to that set it was called close to home and gabrielle union was in that and lizzie kaplan was in that yeah and kate town was the lead and jared was the lead and i was like the local townie muscle guy who ran the diner I would offer up sage advice with curly fries. (laughs) So I'd known Jared. And then Jensen is just such an open dude. And I was vouched for by Jared. So I was walking into a very warm house. I was also brought in to do a very, very specific job. I was brought in to do Bella Lugosi's Dracula. (laughs) So it was wonderful and it was such a challenge and it was it was a different kind of job than I've ever had to do. And I kept on my laptop back when there were disk drives, I kept the 1930s Dracula in my trailer and I would practice the dialogue and practice the, the faces and the movements and the gestures literally up until they would go, nick, 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 Mr. Stashwick, they're ready for you. And I would don my cape. And they would give me my fangs. And I'd be like, you know, technically speaking, Bela Lugosi didn't have fangs in the 1930 edition. They're like, shut up, hit your mark. Um, <laughs> like, nope, cross the line, too nerdy stuff. They're like, <laughs> exactly. They're like, oh, really, Poindexter? Um, so, um, and, and to be honest, like, you do a show like Teen Wolf where, you know, we, we always joke when we were on 12 Monkeys. You always joke because whenever you'll be talking at craft services, you're talking like this. And then they yell, action. And everybody starts talking like this because your body might. And everything gets real whispery and quiet. It looks great on screen when people are all intense and quiet on these on these shows. And so with Teen Wolf, it was a lot of that sort of, you know, very precious, very quiet acting. But with Bella Lugosi's Dracula, I'm like, show me where my dungeon is. It was, like, <laughs> it, was it was just a huge scene chewing, campy performance except for that one scene where he lets his guard down and so they were vastly different experiences 
other than there were hunky male leads that everybody wants to talk about and a beloved horror franchise. So they were very similar. Like there's a lot of crossover in the fan base. You know, they both are deeply beloved and remembered, hence why I'm sitting here at a podcast and uh, talking about it. And and for same with, with Supernatural podcasts too. Uh, I go on those uh, to this day, 14 years later. It's great. Awesome. I love it. Yeah, Keep the dream awesome. alive. Yeah. You mentioned 12 Monkeys. How would you compare working on something like Teen Wolf, which maybe leans more into the fantastical horror versus something yeah. like, like 12 Monkeys, which is yeah, you know, the more grounded. Stuff, that, that normal everyday stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? It's interesting because the job is the same in that we have to act like and, and, and it is extraordinary. 12 Monkeys took place in 2043 after a massive virus killed like 8 billion people or a billion people, whatever it was. 6 billion? 6 billion. And so it was uh, just a post-apocalyptic warring gangs. And you have to act like it's business as usual. You have to, I would say, I have to buy it so I can sell it. And if I sell it, they'll buy it. Got it. Mm-hmm. So I have to believe all this stuff is real and react to it accordingly and be able to comprehend the time travel and act like it's just, that's what we're doing on Tuesdays. We're jumping to 1945. That's just how that works. 12 Monkeys, there were a lot more extraordinary sets, the time travel room, and then we would be in medieval England or we would be in the Old West or the 1980s, which was one of my favorite episodes, which is a big art heist episode with Emily Hampshire at her nuttiest. She was just amazing in that episode. And it's a comedy episode too. So it was one of those departures after stuff that was really heavy that we got to do something really caper-ish. So 12 Monkeys, and I was also on that show for four seasons. So it was a completely different kind of job. It was also in Toronto. Teen Wolf was shot here. And Teen Wolf was, again, two to three weeks out of my life spread out over a couple years, right? Right. So they were just different, different jobs. And also the character didn't really grow and change. It's like, he's concerned father in the first episode. And guess what? In the third episode, he's concerned father. He's much less put upon in that scene where she lifts the tree and I'm like wagging the old dad finger at the boys. (laughs) But the experiences were completely different. Obviously, so much more of my life was spent doing 12 Monkeys and investing in that character over the course of four seasons. On Teen Wolf, what scene was the most fun or the most challenging to film? Obviously, the emotional stuff is... As as fun as it is, it's also like, do it again, cut. Okay, now we're going for a close-up, do it again. You're weeping when you see your child, do it again. And and at a point, you get emotionally exhausted, and you're like, I don't know how much more waterworks I got. I hope you got it. I did my crying for you. I hope it's in the can. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, we're going to have to break out what we call the tear stick. <laughs> it's the actor's secret, right? So it's just a little bit of menthol that they put under the eyes so that I don't have to worry about the special effects of my waterworks. I just have to play the truth of the performance that I'm like, oh, my gosh, my daughter. I think I did it better than that on the day. But, you know, <laughs> I, I'll, leave, I'll leave that up for you to decide. Those are always challenging scenes because you want them to come across as truthful and authentic. Yeah, and running through the woods. Those are always so repetitive. And it's like, we got to get another shot. Run more. Okay, we're going to go from this angle. Run more. We're going to jump over there. Don't, don't trip. Okay, there might be snakes. <laughs> <laughs> 
12 Monkeys was probably far more gr physically grueling. This was much more emotional at times. Every scene, he was at a place where he's losing his mind. Every scene was sort of at a peak of him just being angry or upset or despondent or relieved and reconciling and, and disbelief and all of that. So there was a lot of holding yourself in a place emotionally for extended periods of time as an actor. It does all sound exhausting on different levels. And, <laughs> and like it could just sap you. Yeah. I mean, you do go home and you're like, wow, I felt like I ran a marathon, but I sat in a chair the whole day. <laughs> I got you. I got yeah. you. This isn't a question. I just wanted to say that Justified is one of my all-time favorite shows, and anyone who was involved with it is a hero, so thank you. Also, you're not the only Teen Wolf alum to appear in Harlan County. Shelly Hennig, who was Malia and uh, your daughter on Teen Wolf, also made an appearance on Justified. Yes, uh, she is such a delight. She's such a delight. And that show was so much fun to work on. Timothy Oliphant gives me the vapors. It was just like, oh. He's just... <laughs> like, like, I've been married 27 years, or together 27 years, married 25, and I still had to take a seat. Like, oh, oh. <laughs> and he's a joker, and he loves to laugh. He's a producer, so you could try stuff out with him. And go, hey, what, what if we move this around and tried this out? And, and there was another, there's a scene where I'm starting to rant and rave, and he, like, clicks my morphine to put me to sleep because i'm in a body cast right because he ran over me twice yeah so every time on every take i would just try to make him bust by saying the most random thing before i went unconscious and i think the one that got him i, I was sitting there i go but then, and then for the love of benji which was a movie we all knew growing up about a dog and then he just stops and he goes did you just say for the love of benji <laughs> Why, yes, Timothy Oliphant, I did. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other connection is the woman that was the nurse in that episode I worked with on Psych, nice. Maggie Lawson. Yeah. Very nice. This is a college town. Everybody ends up working with each other. We see each other on the quad. Aww. <laughs> uh, speaking of connections to other actors, were you able to spend much time with Shelley Hennig before you filmed that really emotional reunion scene? No, because we we were never shooting on the same day. We may have met that day. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I'd seen her picture, uh, headshot in the in the makeup trailer, so I knew what my daughter looked like. Although, no. Well, I mean, I knew what she was going to look like, but I, she was a grown-up. She was a little kid when she disappeared. Right. And now she's a, 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 a grown-er person. And so I had to hold in my head losing a little girl and then meeting a young woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Would you have liked to have seen uh, Henry's relationship with Malia developed more over the course of the show? And by that, you mean, would I like to have been a series regular? Sure, yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I mean, of course you always like, especially, and then on the second scene, because then we worked together uh, on that day and I really enjoyed her company. And, and then we did that other scene, which was far more playful and far lighter with the, with the tree in the parking lot scene. So I really enjoyed, uh, and I enjoyed the, the boys. Uh, they were great to work with. I mean, the reason I love long form television is to, to see a character grow, to go from one point of view to another and see how things develop and evolve. But I also think I, right after that, I booked 12 Monkeys. Or I think I was doing 12 Monkeys. That would have been, the first time 20, would have been 2013. Oh, I was doing, I was doing the originals. So okay. I, I don't think I was even available. And then I went right from the originals into 12 Monkeys. That happened to me on Gotham where they were like, we think we want him in all of season, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, no, 
he's he's shooting a TV series in Toronto. Like, okay, we think we'll kill him. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Oh no! Rough. All right. Okay, cool. He's dead to us then. Yeah. <laughs> yep. yep. And that's what happened. I got to shoot one episode of Gotham again the next season, and it was my swan song. So what was it like returning to Teen Wolf for the season five opener? Well, again, what's what's always nice about returning to a show is all of those things that you're aware of, of like, I got to learn how this set operates and what's okay and what's the dynamic with these actors and are they cool to joke around with? And of course, so coming back, it's always like, hey, hey, <laughs> We had a blast last time. This is how I spend my life. So I want to enjoy what I'm doing. So I will be joking around with the cast. And I, you know, I take the job seriously, but I don't take myself seriously. So it was a, a pleasant, lovely reunion to come back and be like, and I think I shot a day coming back. I was just what one scene in the parking lot. Right. Yeah. So that was it. And so it was like, oh, hey, guys. Bye, guys. <laughs> Were there any characters that you wish you were able to share scenes with but didn't during those three episodes? I had scenes with the two guys, but they weren't much. Like there was this locker room scene mm -hmm. and then there was the scene in the parking lot. And that was it. I mean, I would, they I really enjoyed their company and I really enjoyed acting with them. So that alone, to just be able to explore more and, and share more screen time with those guys alone would have been great. Nice. I'm a fan of yeah. them. Yeah, they're, they're talented cats. Can we go ahead and get that Comic-Con story? So we were there for 12 Monkeys. We were invited to the Entertainment Weekly's party, which was on the roof of the Hard Rock Cafe. It was like one of those parties where when the elevator door opens, Jamie Lee Curtis walks out with Emma Roberts. Like, And they're like, party's upstairs. I'm like, obviously. So <laughs> my wife and I, we get on the elevator and we go up and and the doors open, and then there's uh, Danielle Panabaker, who I did a Disney Channel movie with her called Stuck in the Suburbs 100 years ago. And so I knew her, And but the place is wall-to-wall -wall humanity. So many people. And I'm like, oh, I'm not going to fight my... I'm too old to fight my way to the front of all these 20-somethings to try and say, uh, I'm on the list. Like I, like, I don't... Like, I just didn't have it in me. And I'm like... Uh, we'll, we'll give it a tick just to see. And a lot of people were trying to scam their way in. And I knew I could see the table and I could see actually other castmates of mine on the other side of the glass drinking it up. And I turn and I look and I'm like, and there's Dylan. And then there's there, there's the, there's the gang. And so so I'm like, hey, so I'm talking to them. And they're like, hey, how you doing, Todd? I'm like, oh, I'm great. They're like, what are you up to? I'm like, blah, 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 blah. Here for 12 months. Like, oh, it's awesome, it's awesome, it's awesome. And then they all like, they're just shepherded through the crowd. Like the crowd parts and they make their way through. And I'm like, oh. So I'm just left standing at the door with my wife, still a sea of humanity. And then Danielle Panabaker gets escorted in by her publicist. And my, and my wife and I are like, we should just probably go home until a door opens off the side. And a week before I was shooting Gotham and the door opens and somebody goes, make way for the cast of Gotham. And the cast of Gotham starts pouring through and the whole crowd parts to make room because they have like a PR person leading them in and they're walking by and they're like, they're like looking at me like, Stashwick, we just saw you last week. And the, <laughs> they wave me in. So I essentially body surfed my way into the party <laughs> on the back of Gotham. We get in the party. It was one of those parties that, you know, you would have killed pop culture had you dropped a bomb on the roof. <laughs> of the Hard Rock F Hotel because the cast of Teen Wolf was there. The cast of Flash was there. Game of Thrones was there. Firefly was there. Like everybody, originals, Vampire Diaries. The, the, and the highlight capper story 
just to show you, like, this was just an absurd event for nerddom. I was talking to Peter Capaldi, Doctor Who, with my wife, and I look over his shoulder, and Harry Potter is dancing with Arya Stark. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I can, uh, this nerddom has now swallowed itself. <laughs> there you go. It, it's officially turned itself inside out. That's yeah, it sounds fantastic. amazing though. I love that. Yeah, yeah. it's a whole nerd dream. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a crazy it was a crazy party. Yeah, that Jared Padalecki was there. Joss Whedon before we found out he was a, a dirtbag was there. <laughs> it was it was just it was just bedlam of nerdery. It was great. It was a lot of fun. I need that somehow. On a shirt. 12, Twelve monkeys was invited. Just bedlam of nerdery. But yeah, that's a <laughs> it's a good one. I like that. Yeah. Okay, who on the Teen Wolf set, cast or crew, would make the best alpha? Well, I was there, so I mean. So that answers that. Yeah, you can totally choose yourself. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, it's funny. When I was a kid, back in the Stone Age, we, uh, my my cousin and I had a a monster club because there was a thing in the in the. there was a thing in the eighties called Monster Kid. Like, if you were a, were you a Monster Kid, and that usually meant you read uh, famous monsters uh, filmland of screen uh, of filmland. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so if you like poured over that in Starlog magazine, we were a Monster Kid, and so in our Monster Club, we all picked a monster to be, and sure enough, I was the Wolfman. Nice. Because oh. I, I have always been partial to werewolf stories. Very nice. I love them. I love them. I mean, I've only played vampires, but I was uh, and demons. But I always was, I always favored the the werewolf. Yeah, nice. It's a, it's a good supernatural creature. Yes, it is. It is. Well, you've been on so many fantastic shows, and I swear, I think you've been in everything I've watched since like two thousand. <laughs> like every single show, I love Dark Angel. I saw Titus. Yeah. Everything like on your yeah. page. What has been your favorite role to play? <sighs> Don't make me choose. <laughs> you can top, throw it top three or something. Just. Well, top three. Top three. Deacon, Dracula, and Draken. I loved playing Dr. Draken in the live action Kim Possible. It was one of the most fun roles. And then one that I can't talk about. <gasps> well, Ooh. I mean, we can cut anything out. So go on. So you see a red dot. <laughs> red dot, red dot. Like I'm getting a call here from. <laughs> yeah, no, I have a shop collar on. I can't, I can't talk about it. But it was a nerdy dream come true. <sighs> okay, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna mention like franchises. So Marvel, okay, Marvel, okay, okay, sure. Ah, oh, you're yeah, no yeah. fun. I am co-writing on a Marvel video game. Oh, very really? nice. Super cool. Yeah. Very yeah, nice. For, for Skydance New Media, yeah. Very nice. That's dope. Yeah. That's super fun. Super fun. Nice. But wow. yeah, so this this other role that's coming up that will be announced hopefully shortly. It was one of those going to work every day was I had to keep the nine-year-old in me at check. Like, <laughs> All right. Just, just um, chill. Just chill, little nerd boy, and do your job. <laughs> Very nice. All right. The joy of the experience was not lost on me every day I was at work. Well, that's fantastic. And I hope people uh, people dig it. Yeah. I'm sure they will. Definitely. So you mentioned video games and you've worked in movies and TV. Do you have a favorite medium that you like to work in? Oh, don't make me cheese. <laughs> 
I love telling stories. I'm fortunate that the projects that I've worked on as a writer have not that they've woven beautifully with my career as an actor. And mm-hmm. so I, you know, I spent three years writing on a Star Wars video game, uh, working with Lucasfilm. Never came out. Oh. It was a blast, and I spent a year working on Suicide Squad Two. I was a writer on that uh, until James Gunn. They like kind of like we're going to do James's script and have James direct it. I'm like. I get it. So I've been able to to dance in a lot of awesome franchises and now Marvel as a writer. And then I have another video game coming out in January called Forspoken for the PS5 that I co-wrote. Nice. I like them both for completely different reasons. Acting is easier, but far more consuming of my time because often it's like you go to Toronto and do this for 14 hours and you're away from your family and that's all you're doing. And writing is, is much more intimate, but it feels far more vulnerable. And look, I have... I've had to have a sock on my junk in front of cameras and <laughs> writing is far more vulnerable. Gotcha. All right. Yeah. Like I've had to bear my bottom and, and it's like, and yet when my writing is put out there, I'm far more like, Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I gotcha. Yeah. All right. The Lucas project you mentioned that didn't, didn't happen. Was that that, that Boba Fett game that never went anywhere? No. Okay. No, there was a game years ago called 1313, I yeah, think. Yeah, 1313, was, yeah. Was a was also possibly a Boba Fett game. Yeah, ours it was, was not ours a was Boba a, Fett game, but it was a Boba Fett game. Ours was <laughs> the one with Amy Hennig at EA. Okay, neat. That uh, we did it, uh, it, they pulled the plug on that in 2017. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah it was. It was, it was. I mean, I put my heart and soul into it for three years. And again, Star Wars, I saw when I was eight years old for the first time, and it blew my mind so it was just fun to be able to play in that sandbox because i'd already been playing in it since i was a kid in 77 nice you know with all my action figures and whatnot very nice (laughs) what show that's currently on air would you love to guest her on that you haven't had the opportunity to marvelous mrs mazel nice I would love to be on that. I like how stylized it is. I like taking the big swing acting wise and, and having to kind of flex my comedy muscles, which is why I loved doing the live action Kim Possible. Because again, you go from whispering in a basement in Toronto to being able to play Dr. Draken, like huge, big <laughs> theatrical clown. And Maisel has that kind of Neil Simon banter that fast. I would love to do an episode of that show. I would love to do The Bear. Oh, yeah. That's getting good reviews. I'm a Chicago boy, and I worked in many restaurants, and that would be a wonderful challenge to work on that show. What else are we watching? The Boys. I've auditioned for that a bunch of times, and I'd love to get up there and mix it up with those guys. Yeah, that'd be fun. That's a great show. I was going to say, I love how different they all are. It's not just like, oh, they're all genre or they're all this or that. Each one is 180 degrees from the other one. And that's, yeah, that's I mean, awesome. I, I, and that's, but that's been my career. Like I've done Will and Grace and Dharma and Greg, and then I've done Law and Order Special Victims Unit. And then I was on The Riches. So it's like, I'm very fortunate that I've been able to have one foot in comedy and one foot in drama. And often, except for Teen Wolf, I'm the funny guy in an otherwise dramatic show. Nice. And that's always something I love doing. Nice. Like bringing a little bit of levity or irony to a moment, being the voice of the audience sometimes uh, and going, isn't this strange? <laughs> you guys noticed that, right? <laughs> like being that guy is always fun. I was actually legit about to bring up how I really would love for the Riches reboot <laughs> like just to happen. I 
but yeah. really loved that show when it was on. We did too. It was that was a heartbreak, and it was one of those where I I think I had one and a half auditions for that. It was like I came in for the producers, and they're like, "Oh, the director's going to be back tomorrow. Do you want to come back tomorrow and just do this again?" I'm like, "Yeah, sure." And they're like, "Okay, it's picked up for 13. What? Oh, it was like the easiest job to get." Uh. Nice. in the world and i loved it i love that cast i love those people uh, i love that writing i the show had so much potential to uh go and no. now it's it's been canceled in 07 so it's been 15 years yeah that's long enough for a reboot yeah definitely yeah. no definitely I mean, it was just like before it's time yeah it was well it was part of that kind of secret in the suburbs span of shows like big love and the sopranos and like it's a normal family in the suburbs no it's not yeah. <laughs> there was a run of those kinds of shows. Yeah. Now it's all versions of Ted Lasso. It's like new guy in very specific workplace it changes everybody. So our flag means death, the bear, loot. <laughs> like that's the new trend in TV. Yeah. Yeah, I, I also love to do Ted Lasso. That would be fun, too. I love Our Flag. I I, I yeah. couldn't just let that reference pass without saying that. Yes, I love that. So I love it so much. So good. <laughs> it's so good. I auditioned for that as well. I auditioned for Buttons, which went to Ewan Bremner, and it was never mine to have. It was He was born to play that role. <laughs> and so, yeah. We'll still hope to see you on there one day. Yes, yeah, hopefully. That yes, was, yes. That was a lot of fun. I had to name off Starfish. Like it was just a list of all the, of all the sea creatures. Sea urchin. Yeah, it was a blast. <laughs> nice, very nice. So th- this might have already been answered by you talking about being a monster kid, but if you could be any Teen Wolf creature, what would you be? Werewolf. Be a werewolf. Okay. Well, c- p- mostly because the the makeup is minimal, <laughs> and then it's CGI. No, I mean I I love the idea of. The Beast Within. I love the, the transformation of it all. That's cool to me. Nice. It is cool. Yes. Yeah. Todd, are there any upcoming projects you can tell us about? And we can cut anything that you He wants want. to know so bad. Like, well, it's, just, it's okay. killing him over here. Come on. It, it's just like, <laughs> yes, I do have something. I can't tell you about it, but, uh, you know, no. So. It's, um, it's a good one. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. It was the time of my life. I had nice. a time in my life. You well, killed me um, smalls. Yes, killing me smalls. Um, and you'll uh, hopefully you'll I'll be able to talk about it sooner than later. Nice. I just nice. I just they just you know they keep you on a a very short rope. Well, I have uh, speaking of nerdy stuff, I have a nerdy merchandise website that I sell like D and D stuff. Nice. And I, I sell dice, and I sell dice towers, and uh, I sell T-shirts themed after some shows that I've been on. Uh, there's a Supernatural shirt there that says hashtag no garlic, and it's got my big old thingy. <laughs> um, and then I have a couple 12 Monkey shirts on there, inspired by 12 Monkey. Inspired by, um, yes. And I wrote a Dungeons & Dragons-inspired cocktail book with a man named Brandon Cleely, who's a former Imagineer. And we had a, a bartender from Trader Sam's at Disney co-create the recipes. So they're all sort of medieval fantasy themed tiki drinks. Plus there's a narrative and art. It's called Mystic Libations. Very nice. All that can be found at thenerdcircus.com because that's what my life is. It's a nerd circus. (laughs) That's 
That's so fun. Yeah. So that's a big project. And I just, kind of hard to see, the biggest thing that's now available on the site, the site is my signature gaming table. I saw that, wow. I think, on your Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. I worked with this gentleman, Michael Jimenez, at the Weather Dragon, and we collaborated to create a RPG gaming table for uh, my nerd lair. And it's for sale to someone who wants a premium gaming experience. Well, Todd, this has been an absolute pleasure. Oh, good. Thank you for getting on here and nerding out with us about stuff that <laughs> we love. You. Yeah, thank yeah. you so much. My pleasure. It's so fun. We had a great time talking about all things nerd with Todd, but now it's back to spoilers. Specifically with Styles continuing to struggle with sleep after having seemingly overcome his mental block. Now, considering the rest of the season, I would have liked to have had that scene. Because, like, without all the other characters were getting, like, resolution, it seemed like we had that with Styles. Like, you yeah. see him be able to read objects that are closer yeah. than they appear in the mirror, but then realize when he's alone in his bedroom, no, he's still not okay. Yeah. It's interesting how there's a confrontation of sorts between Kira and Leah in this episode, because Foxes and Coyotes do hate each other. Hate to love. Scary locker room confrontations to sexy dances in Mexican clubs. Very sexy. Liz shifts back and is like, mm, man, my eyebrows are so perfect for having lived as a coyote for so many years. Those great hail genetics. They are a beautiful family. They are good looking. Styles is looking at her going, I'm going to bone her someday. <laughs> I'm going to have sex with her at a mental institution. Ugh, guys, don't remind me. I love Malia and I don't mind her with Styles if you take that relationship a la carte without the knowledge that she was in animal form for eight years, starting when she was eight years old. When you remember that part, it's creepy. Hey, you've had sex at eight, right? I mean, no, not at all. Although I did go to Catholic school, so we didn't talk about sex at all until middle school. And then the class was called Gifts and Promises. That's not a joke. That's really what it was called. You give gifts and make promises so the other person will bang you, right? Uh, something like that. I didn't, I didn't pay that close of attention. <laughs> we learned which are the girl parts and which are the boy parts in elementary school. Well, that's not the same as sex ed. That's like one oversimplification and no other information. Wolfies, lean in. Closer. Okay. School is not the only source for information about sex. There are lots of sources available online that will go over some of the stuff they don't tell you in school, like gender and sexuality minorities, contraception, reproductive health, sex beyond penetration, and consent. Back to Leah. I think they should have shown her with the doll in later seasons. Like she continued to use it for comfort. That would have been really cool and a nice callback. I feel like maybe the reason they didn't is because they wanted us to forget about her being a young child the last time she was human. I don't think that would make, I mean, I, I feel, I mean, because that's more about her sister, right? Like it was her sister's doll. And it's, that's true. you know, so it's all yeah. about where it's being close to her sister's memory. Yeah. But Kate, I do see kind of where you're coming from. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just feel like maybe they wanted to avoid anything, even just somewhat infantilizing mm, even if yeah. it's not directly you know what i mean yeah i see that it was just like hand wave no forget this <laughs> it's not weird uh going back to what it started on it would just continue hinting at styles and what happens with him and then it gets an a mm -hmm. it's a lot more interesting than thinking that there's resolution i guess yeah. for everyone 
making it seem like there's a closed door when really the door is wide open. Yeah. Well, I guess it kind of depends on like how you want to look at it. Cause I could totally see that being cut for time, but I could also see Jeff deciding that, no, let's make it feel like a victory that they have mm-hmm. done the thing. And then when we realize, Oh, nope. Styles is the monster this time. It's like, no, no, it was actually a tragedy the whole time. You know, he didn't get over the thing. You know, and I kind of feel like maybe that's that's where they were leaning. That's like, let's make it feel like a happy ending. And then it's like, but we're going to punch you in the face mm. a couple episodes from now. <laughs> it's not I just happy. think it would have been more interesting to leave it in. It goes back to what we see throughout this season, even later seasons as well, that Styles isn't wanting to share his problems and put mm-hmm. that on Scott as a burden. Yeah. And so it's just been more of him just being completely like, isolated from everyone else yeah with his struggles yeah I mean it could have been interesting to have that scene and then have a follow-up scene that has Scott and Styles talking and Scott's like man I just feel like there's such a weight off my shoulders now that I've been able to shift and shift back I don't have that fear and same with Allison you know she was able to aim and shoot properly like she used to be able to do do you feel so much better since you were able to help Lydia with the trap and you said that you could read again and we kind of think back to the night before where he's still not sleeping and he's but then it cuts to present again and he's like yeah totally I feel so much better you know to to show not just that he's still experiencing things but that he's making a conscious decision not to share with his friends what he's going through, yeah. particularly now that they're not going through anything anymore. And so he feels like it would almost be burdensome on them to know that he's still not okay. Yeah, it would have been good. I had a question, Will. Mm-hmm. So as I was looking at the original script, it said there wasn't an actress yet for Malia. Mm-hmm. It just said Malia, no lines at the start of the script. Mm-hmm. At what point, since you were there for the writing of 3B, did they decide Leah's going to be a reoccurring character? So we should hire someone who's not just a throwaway. An extra. An extra. I don't remember because I don't believe Shelly had done a ton at that time. Oh, she had come like straight off of a like CW show where she was like. Oh, that's right. Weeks. Secret Circle happened before yeah. this. Like she had definitely like done enough where it wouldn't. They would pay her a lot to basically be a pretty girl for, yeah. for two seconds. No, it, it mu- I mean, no, it must have been when we cast her. Because you're right. I, I, I totally was blanking on what she'd done before this. So I, I think it was like, hey, we're, we're going to have you do this part. You're not going to say anything in this first episode, but we're going to bring you back. I'm confident we probably didn't know how she was coming back. You know, because I, I do believe we were already thinking about Eichenhaus, but it wasn't super fully formed yet. So I think that was a discovery in the breaking of that episode. There's like that Malia needs to be here based on what she's been through. <laughs> Maybe she should get some help and talk to somebody. And then it kind of spiraled from there. And then it's like, okay, well, this is how we do that. Mm. She'd also done 469 episodes of that of so, Days of Our Lives. Yeah. Holy God. Remember when Felicia Terrell was telling us about how when she was on the show, it was back when they were shooting like four and five episodes a day, where it's just like they just crank those things out, you know, like doing Price is Right, how they shoot six episodes a day and they shoot like a year's worth of shows in like three months or two months. And it's it's ridiculous. What episode number is it when 
Malia does come back. This is 14, so 15, is it 18? Is it 318 when we go to Echo House, I think? It seems like y'all would have decided by this point in the story that she was coming back, because that's not that many episodes. Yeah. And you yeah. normally at least know what the overall arc of the season is going to be. It's been a long time, so this is, this is a bit hazy for me at it this is, point. Oh, it's 20. Oh, is it 20? Oh, I so, thought it was much earlier in the season. Yeah, she doesn't come back again until Echo House is episode 20. Yeah. That concludes this week's episode of Return to Beacon Hills. We hope you had as much fun listening as we did talking about all things Teen Wolf. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. Join us here next week when we discuss Season 3, Episode 15, Galvanize. Rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast goodness. Five-star reviews get a shout-out. Have a great week, and we'll see you again soon on Return to Beacon Hills. Dude, it's Beacon Hills.